day and welcome to Overdrive, a radio and podcast program that tests cars and the locations you can drive them to. I'm David Brown. This week we reflect on our road trip to Bathurst. On the way we road tested the Mazda 3 and when we got there we take a look at a bit of history then attend the first round of the V8 supercar series. And that gave us the opportunity to interview the Vice President of Thrifty Rent-A-Car Asia-Pacific on the state of the industry and the state of marketing through motor racing because they are the major sponsor of this first round of the supercar series. And finally, an interview with the international racing driver who was driving the 2000 horsepower electric Ford Transit van on its fast laps around the Mount Panorama circuit. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials for podcasts, Spotify, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. Look for Cars Transport Culture. The full interviews with the executive from Thrifty and the race car driver from Ford will also be put up on our website. This program was originally broadcast on the 2nd of March 2024. Last weekend, Fred Brain and I went to Bathurst for the first round in 2024 of the V8 supercars. And it came a week after the 12-hour race, also at Bathurst. We'll talk about that. And there's a little bit of history, a little bit of driving a Mazda up there, and uh, some corporate considerations of what it's like to sponsor, and, of course, the Ford electric vehicle. Fred joins us now. G'day, Fred. Hey, Dave. Why was there one weekend of the 12-hour versus the weekend next of the supercars? They never intended that in the first place, did they? It was a case of they were going to run the street circuit at Newcastle, but that that got canned, so they had to find another circuit. So they uh, introduced the 500 at Bathurst. And they're only allowed five weekends a year at Bathurst, so they put the two events together to say that it was one event. Five events rather than five weekends, so yes. they managed to get two weekends as one event. I've suggested that they should have five events a year, but they should be 70 days long. <laughs> <laughs> we can do without Christmas and New Year, I suppose. It, it is a historic area, isn't there? I think even in the hotel we stayed at, it is one that is frequented by senior race drivers and commentators. You had pictures on the wall. What was yours? Mine was a 68 Falcon driving up the main street of Bathurst. On my wall, I had a Monaro, a racing Monaro, the 67. Or 68, yeah, yeah. Bruce McPhee model and a Charger. Yeah, yeah. It looked really good, I must confess. You know what? Guy wrote to me and said when I put a post up on Facebook, he said, I took those photos. (laughs) <laughs> Did he? Yeah. Really? Bayless, his name is. And there's a number of businesses, cafes and things, that have used his photos right. and they're still there. I reckon that might make for a good trip. Because yeah. Bathurst has a lot of interesting history in terms of transport. Cobb & Co started there. Oh, really? First motorcycle Grand Prix. Right, yep. Now, there was a track. It was about 7 k's long or something. Right. A lot of dirt and uh, cycling, uh, bike cycling. We should go into that a little more, maybe exactly, you know, the sort of history and doing it when the road first got there. And I, I'm go- I was going to talk to Stuart Sharp. The railway station there is a rather interesting when it was opened, because when it was opened, 
nothing was built. Right. <laughs> because the manager, the bureaucrat, it was in a bad temper because he wanted it a little before they crossed the river. There's a lovely story. We, we might do that next week. Yes, okay. But we did drive up to Bathurst in a Mazda 3. Now, you go back, Mazdas, as I think we talked about last week, really did make their name with small passenger cars, didn't they? In the 90s, around the 323. Your mother had a 323, didn't she? But yeah, you're right. They typically were the smaller cars. That's what they were known for. Um, And then the rotaries. So they had those two factors that were probably the most well-known things about Mazdas. Uh, But then they started getting four, like they have utes and also the biggest sedans and wagons. Now into SUVs. Do you know only 9% of their sales now from last year for the full year were Mazda 3? Right, okay. Yeah, that certainly certainly dropped. So the SUVs and the utes are dominating. Yes. Uh, the, the three you can get as a hatch or sedan. Now, we had the G20, which is the two-litre four-cylinder, uh, 114 kilowatt, 200 newton metres, uh, with its rated a fuel consumption at 5.9 litres per hundred. We got about, what, 6.8? Yeah, which is still pretty damn good. You can get the G25, which is a 2.5 litre, a bit bigger, but we won't go into that now. Now, there's three models. There's the Pure. That's the base model. (laughs) Oh, right. Okay. One's above the Pure, then uh, the Super Pure, I suppose. It's like extra virgin olive oil or something, (laughs) isn't it? There's the Evolve and there's the Touring. They didn't give us the Pure. Right. We had the Evolve. Uh, okay, the, mid, okay. the mid-range one. Right, yes, yep. They're priced, drive away, Mazda deals at the moment, 34500 up to 38800 oh, okay. plus a bit, yes. in New South Wales, yep. a bit more in Western Australia and other places. Yeah. It's not bad, really. Um, For a sedan... But this is, this is quite a small car, because we, oh. we had a Mazda 3, I think it must have been about a 2015 model, I think, and they're... Back then, they were something like a $21,000 drive away, hmm. um, which was a pretty good deal at that time. But they seem to have crept up in maybe in relative terms, although I don't know what the opposition prices are for things like, say, Corollas or... Oh, they'd be around that. It's not bargain basement. You'd no. be able to get an MG for cheaper. I thought it toured well. Uh, it was a pleasant car to drive. Uh, no doubt about that. On the rural roads, we went up on Bell's Line, yeah. which is twisty a bit and only one lane each way in most cases. And performance-wise, it'll go back years when you're going uphill, so you hear the engine revs, but there was really no shortage of performance to drive the hills. No, no. Although it is speed limited. I mean, it's 80, I think maximum 80 k's maybe for uh, most of... Uh, Bell's line anyway these days, isn't it? Yeah, and we didn't have big trucks to overtake. No, that's right. Uh, I was asked that question about, you know, whether, you know, it was modest power in a way, but yeah. it shows around what a base Corolla is. In the olden days, that might have been actually more significant because you would have had to overtake more. Yes, yeah, that's that's true enough too. But 100, what did you say, 114 14 kilowatts. kilowatts? It's getting on, what, let's say about 180 horsepower. Hmm. That's, that's 
fairly significant, actually. Well, in today's terms, it's not a, it's not huge. No, no. And a w- more weighty cars than yeah. perhaps when my mother had her 323. Yeah. Low and sleek looking, but you that did uh, somewhat compromise getting in and out, didn't it? Yeah, it seemed to me the interior, it's become smaller. I don't know about the overall size of the car, but it's gotten smaller and lower and a bit more claustrophobic. and Certainly in the back. Yeah, the back was kind of really closed in, um, and especially for us older people, getting in and out of really low car. I'll have to find someone like that. <laughs> yeah, well, same here, of course. But <laughs> yeah. Your other concern with the low and sleek look, though, is the lowness of ground clearance, not in driving down the road, but going into various oh, driveways. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the bades of modern modern passenger cars in my opinion the fact that they've got such low low fronts and low gla- low ground clearance that uh, you're forever scraping them on driveways i uh, visited my son and scraped it on the driveway right. okay <laughs> so the mazda 3 uh, an interesting car uh, holding up the passenger vehicle rather than suvs but uh, well not so much holding it up but uh, desperately trying to maintain some sort of semblance in the market. It certainly, I mean, the number of features when we were running through the different safety features on the computer that it has and the feel of the interior, it's a nice quality feel to the interior. Yes. It steers nicely, brakes nicely. So it does everything that, uh, everything nicely that uh, you'd want want a car to do these days. Someone who perhaps uh, enjoys driving, perhaps just two people, would be the, the preference. Oh, yes, yeah. Perhaps a little younger and a little bit more flexible than some. Uh, <laughs> quite possibly, yeah. That, and then that's where it fits into the market. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. And Fred, we'd spoken to Hertz, I remember some time ago, about embracing electric cars. Hertz aims, of course, to be the upmarket renters, but part of their organisation also includes thrifty renter cars. And Thrifty invited us to Bathurst to talk about how being a major sponsor is part of their corporate activities. They sponsored the first round, as you mentioned, last year, which was held in Newcastle, but local opposition meant that it moved to Bathurst. So they've been mucked around a bit, uh, Thrifty, but I spoke to uh, their vice president, and um, towards the end of the interview, you will hear that he says that he thinks the organisation from V8 Supercars is very, very good, so I think he might stick to it. But an interesting point about where the modern marketing fits in. We'll talk about that at the end of the interview. Owen McNeil, I'm the Vice President of Thrifty for Asia Pacific. You've come to the mecca of Australian motorsport. We're sponsoring the Newcastle round that's now moved to here. Is it different? I think it's exciting because, as you said, this is Mount Panorama, the mecca. So uh, we obviously haven't been here as a name sponsor before, so it's another event for us in the lift. We enjoyed Newcastle, so we're we're back again for Bathurst. Newcastle had a a great sort of family atmosphere, didn't it? Yeah, and and that that really does align with our brand. Sort of family and small business is where we're looking, and we have a great connection with supercars over that. So is supercar good for that too? Particularly now that it is broadening, I think, 
the range of people and the range of uh, companies that are involved in the sport? Yeah, and I think if you look at the diversification of sponsors, there, there's a whole gambit of, of sponsorships now that are probably automotive aligned, but not specific. And I think that's where Thrifty fits into that. Goes to New Zealand as well, which is another one of our markets. So no, we're, we're uh, very pleased with how Thrifty and Supergars has aligned up. In Newcastle, it was in some ways a family affair. You tailored your approach to that? Yeah, we did a lot of round-the-track activation, as we call it. So actually having Thrifty presence out there for families to come and engage with the Thrifty brand, and it was quite successful. This circus probably lends itself less to that, just because of the way of the layout. But the vision and the, and the value of having Thrifty with Supergars at Bathurst is, is not to be underestimated. I guess you've got a whole program, not just to have your name on the, on the board, but yes. uh, to link to this uh, through branches. And yeah, things. absolutely. And um, a lot of our franchisees will be here during the event. So we'll expose them to that. And that shows them that we're promoting the brand through, through Supercars. We come through COVID and a harsh supply. Have we stabilised a bit? Yeah, pretty much. There's still... There's still some constraint to the, the car you want when you want it, but uh, certainly nothing like what we've been through. So, It's a time of loyalty to supplier. Getting, a supplier could have made a lot more money selling to private. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've got certain brands that we've, OEMs that we've worked with, and they've been very loyal to us and us loyal to them. And I think that really did take us through the, the pandemic period, and it's now paying dividends for both of us. Do you see a shift in the nature of cars that people are asking for, or is it... we definitely see a, a, an adoption of the hybrid car? We we see a, obviously the SUV as being a really important one, but the Hilux and Ranger Ute and Everest are massive for us, and you know that's what people are buying, so that's what we put on the fleet to rent, okay. and, and the adoption's very good. So. Why would someone do that? Is it a ute to have functionality or is it a ute to appear right at the right time? It's, it's what Aussies do and they, they go fishing, they go camping, they, they go out and about and they like the safety and the height of the vehicle, I, I believe. And the cars have got so much better to drive and so much more comfortable that they're, they're a great option for us. Do you think look, we're embracing a better broader attitude to saying I'll use my car most of the time but I'll get a specialist car when I need it. Yeah and I think you know we run Kia Carnival's eight-seaters they, they can accommodate a, a you know the bigger family yeah um, and if you're on vacation and you need that type of vehicle you probably don't want to drive it and buy it all day if, if you've only uh, got a smaller family but if you're meeting up so we definitely get could take up of those vehicles. You have a few EVs on, on yeah. specifically for thrifty, not just as part of uh, yeah. Hertz and that. Yeah, no, we, uh, we, we're doing quite well and we're very surprised at the leisure customers' adoption of EVs on their on their vacations. It, it actually is much better than we thought it would be. Oh, okay, and they're not, it's not giving them the range anxiety that they may have had? No, I think range anxiety is solved because Polster is 400 plus kilometres. It's I call it charge anxiety now, where you have to you have to know that there's a charger when you get there. But that's getting better, and the network's getting rolled out. So, a holidays are typically where you plan well, isn't it? Yeah, and some of it's destination holiday, where you're not really moving a lot, and some of it's road tripping. Hmm. Um, and I think the the road tripping is probably less suitable to an EV, but the destinational EV is a very suitable car. Is it important to inform the customer of what the 
idiosyncrasies of an EV is? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Polster for us is a very easy car to drive as an EV. Um, you don't need a lot of education um, on how to drive that car. A little bit on how to charge it and where to charge it and how that works, but um, we're getting much better at that and uh, we're seeing the adoption rates come up. So You're getting better at educating understanding the yeah, needs. Yeah, of, absolutely. In fact, you don't have to turn it on. Yeah. You just get in and pull the lever and you're going, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that, that's an important point, isn't it? It's a two-way street yeah. of them understanding what the car is, which you can tell them, yeah. but you understanding what the need is. Yeah, and look, I think our position in the marketplace is to expose an EV to a customer that may or may never be adoptive at that point in their life uh, or in the life cycle of the vehicle. But giving it to them on a vacation or a business trip, they get to experience it and can see what it's like to charge it, have it for a few days and then take it back. And they don't have to make a purchase commitment, but we do think that that will help customers into, into the EV once they've driven them. Is that part of your corporate role, do you feel, of, of being responsible and being open to helping rather than just making a hardcore yeah, yes or no decision? I, I think it's both. I think we, we like to be early adopters so we can expose our customers. So the curiosity factor can be, can be used for us. I think the other part of that is to show that we can do sustainable travel, whether that's for business or, or leisure, and that we can be part of that supply chain that allows customers to choose sustainability um, over practical. So we, we have a range of vehicles, so um, it's, it's interesting to see what our customers have adopted to. There has been some press about the resale value of them. Is that a concern to Thrifty? Well, we, we mainly run the Polster brand, uh, and, the, and the Polster brand hasn't been discounted like some of the other marks that have been been quite uh, visible. So, but you know, the used car market for EVs is an unknown factor, and we knew that going into this. So, we've obviously got to try and see how that works out, where it lands in the future. Who knows? Um, and what the entry price will be of EVs in the future uh, is also another big consideration, and the technology step. Survival of the fittest is not necessarily the biggest, but those who can adapt. Yeah. Is, that, is that how the, you are approaching the rent? Well, you must be approaching the rent market, be it EVs or anything else. No, correct. And I think we're going to go in, in waves. It will be early adoption, early adapter, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then it will wane and then it will come back up again. And price points and charging infrastructure, and the technology. Technology is step changing. Like it, it really is. If we look at the original Leaf range. I think it was sort of 150 kilometres, and now almost all of them are 400 plus. So we see the EV journey for us is about making sure that we understand the vehicles, we understand how to repair them, how to maintain them, how to charge them, where to charge them, and then provide that safety of charging points out in the infrastructure and information of how to how to access them. You do vans and trucks, small trucks, I think. Is that oh, and large trucks. We'll, yeah. we'll do, um, you know, eight-ton Pantex, tort liners. So we have a big range across our 300 locations in ANZ. So if you need to move, I've got the vehicle for you. <laughs> That could be a slow one. Yeah. <laughs> the marketing department will be on to me in a minute. Well, finally, then, the supercars would link to that as well, too, isn't it? That it's people out there doing practical things. Yeah, and, and I think small business for us is hugely, hugely important market for us. And for the Thrifty brand really does align with that. And that's why we partnered with supercars. 
because that's their, their customer base as well as the families and leisure. So it's a really good alignment for the brands for us with Supercar. And um, we're, we're really, really impressed about how Supercars goes about their sponsorship engagement. But they do that well? Absolutely. I'd say best in class. Really? They're not keen just to take your money and put a billboard here? The Supercar guys work very, very hard, in my opinion. Mm. Oh, and lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. You too, Dave. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Fred, I think when you and I started racing and rallying and that sponsorship was pretty elementary and almost a little bit of goodwill for the competitor, whereas now I think it's far more measurable by its marketing impact. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's big business these days, the sponsorship of big events like that. I mean, you, you just wonder how much money changes hands to put signs up and to put signs on cars. I mean, when we did it, if someone had a sign written, it was probably because <laughs> someone did something at cost price for them rather than giving them anything in particular. And it was very much very related to motoring oil companies and, uh, and brands and or cigarettes for racing. Whereas now it's broader, isn't it? There's uh. the range of people advertising on the cars from lawyers to to well we had vineyards uh, de bortley's used to sponsor a rally car right but i think that was someone they knew yeah it would have been often people they uh, acquaintances or friends that had a business mm. um, and sometimes you might just put a name on to help them because they were a friend yes. even for that matter but yeah certainly these days you look at the broad range i suppose when cigarette advertising was banned from sport then they had to go out and find all new sponsors so and they have broadened the market appeal haven't they i mean early bathurst races were for the heavy rev heads and we went up the top of the mountain had a look and there were what you would say traditional enthusiasts up there weren't there uh yes yeah yeah there was the campers up there that had little trolleys that that cart the beer around in yes. i'm sure yes who cheered their individual people and yes. you know, gave a thumbs up to no one in particular i don't think but, uh, <laughs> well of course there was a period when it was particularly rough i think you were more likely to take a family there now Good chance, actually. That, that's true, because even behind the pits, I mean, it's all very civilised down the bottom end of the circuit. And up the top, they've had to make it more civilised. And the merch area. Yes. Oh, yes, exactly. We know the trendy term, <laughs> the merchandise <laughs> yeah, area. It was really like a carnival. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. Fact, yes, because yeah. they had lots of things there for the kids to do, as well as uh, yes. selling model cars and T-shirts and yes. whatever else. I remember years ago going there where I spoke to Holden. Yeah, this might have been 10 or 15 years ago, where they were just starting to get that in a big way. And in fact, for a traditional 1,000 event, Thursday was a huge day for merchandise. Okay, right. This is Overdrive across Australia. Fred out, the people up there, there wasn't a lot, was there? Uh, no, no. Admittedly, we were, we were there on the Friday and Saturday, not the Sunday, not the race day. But, uh, yeah, there wasn't that big a crowd, nothing like uh, you'd get on the, the 1,000 weekend later in the year. A lot of people have said it's got to remain the holy grail for the 1,000. 
and not try to have a secondary event there. But they're trying to get three events in New South Wales and there ain't a lot of... If you've not got the circuits in New South Wales, you've really only got to... Well, yeah, you've only got Eastern Creek otherwise. Mm. Uh, Wakefield Park may well come on stream again the way it's uh, shaping up at, uh, at the moment. And Fred, there was a Ford Transit van, the modern version of it in trying to be in race form. Let's, let's go back. They used the word transit back in the 50s, but not as a transit van. Now, when they were building cars, it looked a bit like Volkswagens, you know, combis. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. But what year did they bring in their first formal Ford Transit van? Yeah. To Australia? No, 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 to, to the world. Oh, to the world. Oh, gee. Mid-60s, something like that? 1965. Oh, Craigie. I was only guessing there. Eh? <laughs> the Transit van was the typical one that the Crims use in the, uh, in the British cop shows. 90% of bank robbery vehicles were Transit vans. <laughs> now, however... The figure I'm quoting was said by Jeremy Clarkson, oh, so it may, may not be right. <laughs> <laughs> it would have to be a good percentage. I mean, you had a choice of a comma van or a transit van. And you remember the old comma vans? Yes. Yeah, I think a, a transit would win. <laughs> what was that um, Sims? What was his name? The old British actor. Uh, uh, the mob, wasn't it? The, right. the something or other mob. Someone will write in and tell me right. that that was a, a organising a theft. I think they had oh, right. comments yeah. there. Yeah. Of course, the first transit van was advertised by driving it over a rally dirt circuit and zooming <laughs> it. So they were trying to add that thing. 1971, they produced a super van, right. 480 horsepower. Okay. Uh, with a, I think it was a V6 V8 in it, right. mid-engined. Mid Crazy. Tell me about this one. What has this one got? Three electric motors and 2,000 horsepower. Is it 2,000 horsepower? Was it like 1,400 kilowatts, is it? Yeah, no, I think it was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. I've, I've seen conflicting. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure they were saying the, the reports have said um, 2,000. 2,000. Where you had to look around it, it yes. wasn't what you would call a normal van, really, was it? No, it would certainly shape up as a good getaway van for the bank robbers though <laughs> not much room to put the loot in <laughs> and if you're stealing small things the back had been remodeled from a very non-aerodynamic square i think it had the ground effects exit there because oh, right, for yes. the aerodynamics so yes. uh yeah <laughs> yes, and uh, like a a boat tail shape above the wheel wheel arch and, yes. and that um yeah alan our, our colleague our traffic engineering colleague said it might have looked monstrous and what have you but it didn't sound good no no it, uh, it really to my mind when we heard it go flash by it sounded more like a uh a train, an electric train flying by. Here's the sound. Now, it was driven around the circuit by a fairly experienced race driver. Who was it? What's yes. his background? Yeah, a fellow called Romain Dumas, whom we'd never heard of, but if we'd... <laughs> If we'd done a bit of research before we spoke to him, we would have been a bit more awestruck. He's a chap who has raced at Le Mans every year since 2001 and won it outright twice and or been in the winning car, so he's obviously pretty damn good. And um, 
a first place getter in his category three times. Admittedly, that was two times when they won, but he, he's, all, he's also won the Spa 24 hours, Nürburgring 24 hours, Sebring 12 hours, and he's raced at Daytona, uh, American Le Mans series, and the FIA World Endurance Championship. So he's been racing the uh, very fast sports cars because he said the car he currently drives is a Porsche 963, which is called a hypercar, and they're ones that are a hybrid car, mm. which uh, I was looking up the details on that. And they're 500 kilowatts and weigh 1,000 kilos. They do about 205 mile an hour, 0 to 100 k's in 2.9 seconds. Romain Dumas. And you're driving this beast, is that a fair word to use for it? Yeah, it's a beast for sure, definitely. I mean, this van, you know, it's uh, something special. I drove many cars in my career, yeah. uh, electric or normal car, uh, all around the world, let's say like that. But uh, when uh, I heard about this van, I did not expect to, to have a beast like that. <laughs> With so much power, so much downforce, uh, something also so aggressive, you know. Yes. When you look at it, it's, it's not bad. It has immense downforce. It, it doesn't sit in a corner like a van. Uh, for sure, and yeah, what you see from the van, I think it's the size. Uh, for sure, I'm sitting quite high. But uh, the rest, you know, uh, for sure you have a lot of power and a lot of downfalls. Sitting high, is that very unusual? Is that, did that take it to you to have to adapt to no, that? No, it was okay. I mean, sitting high is the hardest point for sure. It's for the center of gravity with higher, definitely. Mm. But uh, for the rest, it's, it's no problem. When you are driving, you get used to it very quickly. What are some of the other vehicles you've driven recently? Well, I'm driving a little bit everything, for sure. A sports car mainly. So uh, this would accelerate? Faster than any of those? I, I can say yeah, this uh, this thing is accelerating very very fast. I don't I don't have I yeah as I said drove many cars, but this one of the one who accelerates the most definitely. Yeah, in, in driving it into a corner, do you follow similar lines, or is there you have have you had to mm. adapt the drive? No, for sure you have to adapt for sure. What is very very difficult is as you can see it's two tone, so it's a lot of weight compared what you are used to. If you are driving a Le Mans car. What I'm driving mainly since uh, more than 20 years, it's always 900 kilos, so this is half of the weight. So for sure it's a lot more weight, a lot more rolling because center of gravity. But for sure, uh, because it's an electric, as soon as you go on power, you have massive uh, torque and massive power. So this is also somehow quite difficult to drive at the start because you have to, to get used to it. Hmm. Braking, you would have to, you know, your distance to braking markers, but that, that's a big one. Uh, for sure, between the speed you are getting very quick, Plus the weight, for sure, you have to think about <laughs> that uh, somehow you have to adapt your braking zone, yeah. Among other things, it's obviously all-wheel drive. Does that affect a particular driving style? Uh, yeah, you have to. I mean, it's a four-wheel drive, but you don't have to forget that the front motor is independent with the rear motor. So uh, let's say you have front axle and the rear axle. They are not connected. Yes. So you always also need to adapt how you deliver the power and, and on which axle you are delivering the, the power. So uh, for that you can still have, because you have so much power, a lot of wheel spin or on the front or on the rear axle. But then it's, it's quite interesting. Can you adjust the balance? No. This you cannot buy driving. No, no. We have some switches that we can reduce, but you cannot, uh, by driving, switch the power more to the front or more to the rear. So it has to be set up for a circuit? Exactly. Hmm. It's, uh, I mean, it's more an engineer car than a, <laughs> a driver car at the end of the day. It's very important that the engineer understand what they are doing and what they are what they can see on a, on a data and also listening to the driver. You know, it's always the same, but I think it's uh, 
it's a lot more complicated because uh, we can say that compare any sports car that you do for 20, 30, 40 years, or let's say you know all the basic, here each day you are learning new things. When we were there, Fred, uh, we, we had to walk around where we perhaps public wasn't allowed to get into the back of their tent. Now, the front of their tent faced onto the merch area so for the public to look at, but when we were there, it was closed off. I think they were rather serious. Yes, yes. Well, they were angling too, which they did achieve in the end to get the fastest time for a closed sedan or closed roof type vehicle around the circuit. Mm. Um, so they were dead serious about doing a really fast lap time. Romain was laid back in what he said, but the, you know they, they were, oh, yes. there were people working on com computers. Yeah. He said they were doing more adjustments mm. to the vehicle, which what those adjustments are, we don't really know. I think a lot of it was to do with regenerative braking. Yeah, maybe. Mm, he mentioned that. Let's hear what he said about driving around Bathurst. Yeah, it's good, but I can tell you when you are with a van downhill, it's a little bit different than compared with a GT3. <laughs> So that is a road to look a little bit more narrow. And coming down the hill, you know, coming from what Forest Elbow and yeah. down, there's the, the, that's got its own unique feel in a vehicle like this. Yeah, it's for sure. You need to, you know, it's it's what is hardest point is for sure. You have a lot of weight, and um, and it takes a lot of space. So for sure, compare a GT that you can really go close to all the world, you know, trying to steer as minimum. You try to do the same with this kind of vehicle, but for sure the weight and everything is uh, for sure a little bit harder. So it, it's not one you can do minute little adjustments no. to? <laughs> no, when you decide to turn, you turn. <laughs> <laughs> is it you've really just got to be so pure in setting up a corner that you, because you don't have such perhaps instantaneous corrections? Uh, no, I mean, it's still, you know, like a race car, it's really direct and so on, but for sure you always need to anticipate that, as we said, mm. for the braking, for the cornering, due to the fact of the weight. So Freddie talked about the weight. Now you've driven a Monaro around Bathurst, <laughs> which is not renowned for its lithe, lightweight approach, no. and not perhaps for its greatest braking capability. <laughs> uh, he, he talked about it particularly going down the hill. How did you find the Monaro? Is that, was that its scariest part? Well, essentially, yes, yes. You, you, you feel as though when you've got more weight there that you've, you're more compelled to get it right because if you get it wrong, that weight is going to carry you further, further afield, probably into a wall particularly when you go down through the S's, the Dipper, and down to Forest Elbow. You've just got concrete walls all the way down. That's the thing about the Bathurst circuit, isn't it? That, yes. That, that it does go up and down you know, significantly. It changes elevation. Yes, yes, uh, that's right. In some corners, you've got a bit of a runoff area and um, a gravel pit, but um, most of them get it wrong. And you've got a wall. <laughs> it was a rally driver. We're trying to think who it was. I think I thought it might have been one of the Scandinavian ones who said anyone can drive fast uphill. It's driving fast downhill. Yeah. That's the real test. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if someone like Ari Vatnen had said it, but um, we were recollecting. And I remember Colin Bond saying something to that effect that when, you, when you're going downhill, you've just got to keep going up gears. If you hit the maximum revs in one gear... 
go to the next gear yeah. and you'll be going faster. It'll feel, uh, it'll feel hairier, but you are going faster. <laughs> <laughs> but I think with, with his two-tonne two ton electric vehicle, it doesn't have any gears, uh, but the momentum you would get. And, and he even commented that the acceleration was just so fast and he's used to driving this Porsche 963. And you think the acceleration of that van, if he's saying it was quicker, you're getting at corners faster. So you've then got to think about your braking a lot more because you're going faster and you've got two tonne to slow up before you get into the corner. Because if you started running wide in the middle of a corner, that two tonne is just going to carry you to the outside of the corner probably off the circuit. You mentioned the Porsche, 2.9, not uh, 100. You probably get a Tesla almost yes. to do that. Yes. But it's the gearing. So the gearing is not necessarily to get off the line, but to, yes. to do most of your racing. Yes, gear. that's right. Yep. But, but the, the fact is, this is an electric vehicle that gets all its power from zero revs. Yes. And he said it's the fastest vehicle. Yes. Now, in fact, he'd also driven it at Pikes Peak. You had it at Pikes Peak, were you driving it there? Yeah, yes. so, but Pikes Peak is different, it's uphill, you know, it's a little bit wider, you don't have this downhill, so you feel less weight. Oh, okay, yeah. it feels a bit different. Yeah, exactly. It, and it, we had a lot more downforce in, in Pikes Peak too, because the top speed is lower, so... So they dialed in more? Exactly. Yeah, okay. When you back off, regenerative braking, yes. yeah, yeah, that'd be sure. pretty powerful, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, we try to work on it <laughs> since today to try to improve it. For sure, when you are like in back speed with a lot of downforce and uphill braking, uh, you can always improve, but are not so crucial than here, downhill with no downforce. <laughs> so here you suddenly realize that you have to, to work more on a region, is what we are doing uh, today and try to, to, to find new steps for the future. And tomorrow you'll try for a... Yeah, tomorrow we see, you know, we drive very early in the morning at 7, so I think it will be very cold, so possible will be, so track will be quite green, so we'll see. I remember interviewing David Brabham, who mm -hmm. rode a 24-hour race, mm -hmm. and he said that the morning actually was a lovely time. The sun was low. And oh, yeah, when you do a 24-hour race, the morning is always good. You like that? Yeah, yeah. Now, at the end, uh, they tried to break it early in the morning, the record, early in the morning, because when it's cooler, they thought it was better. They missed by fractions of a second. Yes. This is the record for a closed vehicle. Yes. Yeah. So they got another run after the shootout. Now, he was laid back when we interviewed him, but when he broke the record, when he had the second <laughs> chance, <laughs> he wasn't just a, a warm, you know, well, oh, well, isn't that good? He was excited. He was pretty excited in the van. Yeah, that's quite right. Yeah, the in-car footage. <laughs> They'd certainly be spending a lot of money on pushing this van around, well, around the world, actually, yeah. to different events. Because the Pikes Peak, Pikes Peak one's quite interesting where they, uh, they came second fastest with the van. Now, actually, just to backtrack a little bit on Romain Dumas, he's a bit of a Pikes Peak expert, too, because he drove it in a Volkswagen 2018 in a Volkswagen electric vehicle and won it, and that was the absolute record time that's been set there. That's a low slung. 
Yes, yes, that race was specially car. built, yeah, mm. yes, exactly, yeah. Rather than a tall, although he talked about it being tall, in all fairness, I think most of the weight is in the battery down low. I don't think there was a lot of structure. No, no, there'd be a bit of Kevlar up there holding it together. But <laughs> but he sat tall, that was yes, true. Know, where it was different. The difference, of course, with Pike's Peak was it's all uphill. Yes, that's what he was saying, yeah, yeah. And it's tighter. So what he found at Bathurst was that they had removed some of the downforce. Right, yes. So they could keep the speed up. Yes, yeah, because getting a, a higher speed is important because of the straights at Bathurst. So yes. you've got to yeah. adjust your drag versus versus speed. I tried to see how fast he achieved up the hill. I think he got over 300k. Going up? Uh, he could have too, actually. But it was a bit hard to tell. It was just an, a camera inside. Oh, gotcha. Yes, OK. Because I know he achieved more than 300 going down, apparently, okay. down Conrod. 1 minute 56 seconds. A typical V8 now. I mean, the record with the V8 is, what, two, 2 minutes and 3 uh, uh, seconds? Yes, something like that. And yeah. you might say, oh, well, isn't that super clever? Well, I, I think that in respect to the V8s, I mean, they've got six 650 horsepower. This yes. has 2,000 and way more. But I think that still showed, you know, there's an awful lot of um, super touring cars that, you know, with specialist-built cars that wouldn't equal what a V8 supercar is. The supercars, they're, they're actually built to a formula as well, which does limit their top speed. Potentially, you could juggle the... You could probably even do better. But, you know, some like um, the old things where you put a big V8 in a, a Volkswagen or something, they're not as quick around Bath. Right. Yeah. Well, they haven't been as quick around Bath. So the supercars are tuned. They're finally... Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's that's quite true. Yes. But nonetheless, here's one. I think that these ones uh, this year, under the current rules, they're doing almost about 10 seconds slower than the 156. I think they were doing near the uh, two, yes. 206s. Yeah, it was something like that, yep. So 10 seconds is quite a lot, but it says two things. One is the electric car was very fast. Yeah. The fastest lap ever recorded in this 148 in a X Formula One car. Jensen, Jensen Button. Button. Yes. Yeah, and the, and the sedan car one was, um, that was the Mercedes in the 12 hour, I think, wasn't it? That said uh, yeah. 157. Yes. Around about. Uh, that was a special. It wasn't actually in the 12 hour, oh, was it? I, I, think, uh, okay. I think that was a special because uh, they didn't win it. The Mercedes didn't win the 12-hour. No, that's right. Much but more people at the 12-hour yeah. than there were at the, at the V8. At the V8s, yeah, yeah, interesting. Hmm. They've got to find another circuit for, I think. Right, yes. Finishing on this, Fred, it's lovely the sort of range of people you met up there. We're up the top of the mountain in the tower having a look in the thrifty. Tower. Yes. <laughs> And there was Nikki there. She was taking photographs. I said, are you professional? She had pretty serious. No, no, just interested. Oh, do you use it? Oh, I used to be a photographer. I'm now in my final year of medicine. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Creativity <laughs> and brains. <laughs> just lovely. You know, we had a lovely yeah, chat. Yeah. That doesn't totally represent everybody, but typifies the sort of extremities of people. And even in the, uh, the people that were invited along by Thrifty, mm. they weren't all car enthusiasts as such. There was one young, young fellow that was a, a techo type fellow and he had his, um, had his glasses that you can take videos with and his uh, mobile phone, which was probably a fairly, uh, 
got his modern. sophisticated modern one, yeah, modern, more expensive. And he had his ring and his watch, <laughs> and they were all <laughs> they all did things. <laughs> what does his ring do now? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I was asking him, but it doesn't quite do as much as the watch. <laughs> but what car did he drive? Ah, yes, but he has an interest in cars. The uh, 2001 v supercharged V8 Jag XJ. Mm. And a beautiful car. Looked good, didn't it? Oh, it looked fantastic. And mm. such good condition, too. There's a hope for the younger generation, Fred. Oh. You'd think there might be, yes. You'd think <laughs> there might be. But he wasn't especially into motor racing because he wasn't, wasn't aware of uh, things like the V8 Utes and the um, Aussie race cars. He hadn't heard of those categories. So There was a Ute whose sole role was to burn out rear tyres. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> I love the smell of burning rubber in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We saw that in the shredded tyres. That's right, yes. Yeah, that was, I think it was an old Ford Ute, quite an old one, not, not a modern yes. Ute. Yes, well, I think it had a more modern motor. Yes, yeah, no, it had a certainly, <laughs> certainly had modern mechanicals under it. <laughs> so a bit of a fair, a bit of a difference, a bit of a, an interesting time, but also a lovely place to go to. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, now especially when it's not too crowded, I must say. It's kind of a different flavour when it's crowded, but and each has their own, own sort of spe special appeal. Uh, but it was actually a good couple of days without it being too crowded. And it's nice to wander through the area without yes. sort of having to say, excuse me, a hundred times. Exactly. Yeah. I had a good time. Thank you. And particularly to uh, Thrifty. Yes. Yeah. No, I much appreciate the invite up there um, and the hospitality of Thrifty when we were there, for sure. Very, very good. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, until next time, Fred, thank you very much for your time. Yes. Good to talk about it. And a longer version of the interview we had with Owen McNeil, the Vice President for Asia Pacific from Thrifty Rent-A-Cars, is on our website and also the longer version of this uh, program. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, Romain Dumas, Owen McNeil, Thrifty Car Rentals, Mazda Australia, Mark Wesley and Bruce Potter for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au and for links to the socials and podcasts, look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.